Welcome to Cuba Pete, No Laughing Matter. Hi, I'm uh, Joe Greer. I'm the founding dean at Roseman University College of Medicine. And welcome back to our podcast. And the purpose of this podcast is to see the interaction between society, healthcare, society, and what we need to do and change in medical education to improve our workforce that takes care of individuals. Understanding that health is just not physical and mental. There's all the surrounding things around it. You could have a patient come in, tell them their blood pressure's fine, their lipids are fine, their EKG's fine, the electrolytes, everything's good, chest x-ray's fine, you're healthy. And then they tell you, yeah, except for my house is in foreclosure. I have a spouse who's leaving me and one of my kids is an addict. So society and its interactions and the wider definition of health does this. Today, I am thrilled to have a friend and a guest, an extremely well-known artist here in Las Vegas and around the country, Juan Muñiz, born in Tijuana, brought up in San Diego. He's uh, the first one in his family to get a college degree, of which he got a bachelor's at the Art Institute of Las Vegas in graphic design and an associate degree at Collins in uh, Arizona, and that one was in animation. Juan is a visual artist, an illustrator, a writer, a poet, a filmmaker. As a matter of fact, his very first documentary was just uh, aired at the San Diego uh, Film oh. Festival, was it not? Yeah, San Diego Latino Film Festival. Which was excellent. Now, I know you've seen Juan's art. Because he's done, he's had clients like UFC, Hard Rock Cafe, Zappos, Don Julio Tequila. Golden State Warriors. Wrong team, by the way. Hey, they pay me. It's Miami Heat. That's who you want. If they pay me, I'll go there. Okay. Sugar Factory. The Paris, Cosmopolitan, and Venetian Hotels and Casinos, Insomniac, and EDC. There was a point in Juan's life where he was diagnosed with anxiety and depression. And he wanted to make a difference in society on how that is perceived as such a taboo. One, that taboo is not just for communities. There was a recent article in the New York Times, I think it was a week ago, and it was entitled, How Doctors Hide Their Mental Health Treatment from Other Doctors. And we have a profession also that if you're applying for a license in certain states, it will ask if you've ever had therapy, as if that's important for your licensure. So that means that that position is then marked for life, so that's why they don't check it off. So even in the profession that is supposed to take care of mental illness, which I think is the number one public health problem in this country, and you could see that with, from the pandemic, suicides, overdoses, alcoholic liver disease. Those were the three leading causes of death that took this country into the, the only time in 100 years that our morbidity and mortality increased. But interestingly, this was not in the black and brown community where we're seeing a marked increase in this. This was in baby boomers that were white, non-Hispanic. And the only difference between they and myself, being of, of the same birth uh, year cohort, was they never went beyond high school. So that complicated things economically, working, 
being in factories that are no longer around. So society within itself, the changes it has is going to affect people's health, which affects the way we train our future doctors. Juan, welcome. Oh, thank you so the much. The floor is yours. <laughs> thank you for, so much for having me, honestly. It's just being here. Uh, I watched a few episodes. Uh, I was very intimidated. It was the first time that I was ever intimidated to do an interview. <laughs> uh, and then I got to meet you a lot more. Um, I'm proud to call you my friend. You know, I'm proud to call you a mentor. Uh, it's just amazing to be here, and I'm thankful. And I didn't sound like I did that much in my life and the, after you went over that list, and it sounded amazing. And then At I started thinking. the beginning. Yeah, and I started thinking, I'm like, there's a lot more to that list, too. And we keep adding more. But I'm, I'm super excited to be here to have, you know, this platform and this amazing show uh, to just be able to talk about these, these things that affect us in many different aspects in our lives, pretty much all of our lives. And it's great that you bring so many different kind of people to the show from different aspects and different backgrounds of life because it's not just one group of people that affects, it affects us all. You know? And actually, by the way, we just launched last week our Genesis program. Right. And we have cars that are wrapped by artists. The very first one Juan did, which is beautiful. And although it's a joyful looking car, like as all of his artwork, it has the theme of mental illness. And the second car we had wrapped has the theme of housing. And so tell me about how you developed the, uh, the thought behind putting that wrap together and all your other art. It's, it's funny uh, how, kind of just how it was stated, that it reminded me of something when I was, when I was told, uh, I was told younger when I came to Vegas, because I, you know, coming from San Diego to Vegas, I was trying to submit the kind of art that I did, even though it was, didn't fall, in, fall into the, right, the same category that a lot of people would consider me as. It's just a mixture. I call it cluster pop. It's a mixture of a cluster of things that I was born with, with pop culture, you know, pop influences, pop art, pop graffiti. So it's a mixture of everything. And I started submitting my artwork to like the Hispanic like, uh, Chamber of Commerce because they used to do a lot of shows here. I wouldn't be accepted for many years because I was told that it, my artwork wasn't Mexican enough. It wasn't Hispanic enough because it didn't look like Frida Kahlo. It doesn't look like Diego Rivera. And I kept thinking to myself, can't get more Mexican than being made by me. I mean, that's where I was born. So it, it was something I didn't understand. I realized I didn't feel, fit in the mold. And now hearing the design, you know, speaks on mental health. Like it does. It, it really does speak on mental health. It also speaks of every aspect of my life. It speaks of the poverty that I had, the, my depression, my anxiety, my joys, my happiness. Everything that I create isn't just about, even though one, it has one particular theme, it encompasses everything that I've went through my entire life to be able to create that image. When I was spo uh, speaking to everybody uh, at Genesis, when they were telling me the, the concepts and the ideas of what they wanted to do, by the moment they got to really talking about that they wanted to take this car around to bring hopefulness to the neighborhoods, um, and the cars are all going to have different themes, and mine was hope. One image that I recently created, well, in the last couple of years, was this little cat character. And it's this little girl cat that, you know, cats known in, in you know, throughout history, they have nine lives. And a cat is a strong-willed animal. It's an animal that you have to almost earn their love and respect. But they also suffer, so they have many lives that they have lost. You know, they say a cat has nine lives. This cat, we don't know what life this cat's in, just like we don't know what people go through in their daily lives. But I, I got to tell you, yeah. I didn't know cats had the ability to love. 
I've had cats. I have dogs. <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, it was uh, the cat, the image on the car. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, and, uh, it's true. <laughs> but that's why it's, yeah, I love my dog. He's so much easier. He just loves me. The other the uh, cat would be like, oh, hey, hi, you're home. <laughs> the, way, the way I heard it was somebody said, you know, my dog looks at me and says, they feed me, they care for me, they yeah. bathe me, they walk me. They must be God. And the cat says, my God, they care for me. They love me. They feed me. I must be God. And see, I, <laughs> and I think of it this way. I was like, wow, my dog is there for me, listens to me without judgment, has always loves me no matter what, loves me more than he loves itself. So if I flip his name around, he's God. <laughs> there you go. So, but yeah, so the idea was the, the, you know, this cat sitting on this lotus, which a lotus is known in, you know, throughout history and especially in the tattoo world, which I love as a flower that grows from the darkest, muckiest water, you know? So she's sitting on this beautiful flower, looking up into the darkness, and all she sees is a little firefly. It's that little hope of light, that little moment where she could finally reach up for something that's different. It's hope, and that's why I wanted to create the design, and it was perfect by the time they, they even finished talking to me and telling me what they wanted to do, the design was already in my head. Of all your art that I have seen, all of it is about hope. It has different messages within them, but there's a hopeful message, no matter how difficult something is, and particularly when you deal with mental illness. Yeah, it's it's definitely, I try to capture that moment. I, I call my art, the phrase that I use for my art all the time is say it's simple, meaning a deep, visually simplistic, but it has such a deeper connotation behind the messages. And it's it's very difficult to create such a deep meaning on something that's visually simplistic. But as I tell people, if you walk into a room and there's a million things, you can't see anything. If you walk into a room and there's one thing, you'll see that right away. I can't hide mistakes on simple lines. I, it's not a perfect circle. It's not a perfect circle. But guess what? Nothing is perfect. So I try to create the artwork the same way as I do it digitally, as I do it on canvas. I try to capture that moment on every piece that I do that speaks about, like you said, to you it's hopefulness. To me, I call it capturing that moment where we have to make a decision. Either the universe makes it for us or we make it ourselves. But he's there, that little character, my little bunny character, or the little cats, or whatever characters I create. It's at that moment where life is going to change, regardless. Have you been creative your whole life? Um, I have always been creative. I didn't know it in the beginning. And when I mean the beginning, it was like by the time I was in second grade. Because by the time I was in third grade, I already knew I was going to be an artist. And I have, my mom still has this old drawing that I did. On, it was a third grade classroom project. The last thing was, what will you be doing when you're growing up? And I drew myself in front of uh, an old animation table and said I was going to be an artist. So I didn't know where my life was going to go. I had an idea, but regardless of where I ended up, it had to be about art. And after I started going in this direction and my life started being affected by certain things, whether it was my mental health, society, relationships that I was in, it was always about art. But that's when I started realizing as I got older, because I didn't get the help that I needed, I didn't get the support that I needed, you know, these issues of mental health and anxiety just kept growing. And everything that I do is speaks for that hope. And that art speaks about hope to be able to share that message that we're not alone. Because a lot of the problems when you deal with mental health is that you feel that you're that unique, that you're not, that you're the only one in the world that has those crazy thoughts. And little do we know that our brothers and sisters, people within a stone throw away are dealing with the same things, but we all just keep it quiet. It's sad what you were mentioning about the doctors having to, to write that down because it's like, I want to help, but if I do this, it could shoot me in the foot in the long run. 
you know, and like you said, it's it's well, you're supposed to help them. So what do you do? What choices can you make? And also, uh, Ken Wells, a psychiatrist at UCLA, who I have worked with uh, in the past, actually did a landmark study with NIH maybe 20 years ago, where he found out that the criteria we use for behavioral health or mental illness are all based on a white population. Mm -hmm. So the African American and the brown communities approach it very differently. Yeah. including when they think they have a mental illness or when they think they're depressed or even in, a, uh, uh, in the curing stage. Yeah. And so, you know, this is not a simple issue. No. And this is not an issue that is exclusive to those that have mental illness. Everybody goes through depression. Everybody goes through anxiety. Um, I went through that every time I had a test in school. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was like when somebody said, you know, we're going to get rid of prayer in school. I said, no, you're not. They go, why not? I go, because I pray before every test. Yeah. <laughs> I pray a I'm lot. I'm pretty sure I did, too. <laughs> I made a lot of deals. But Juan's commitment to the issue of mental illness in this country goes beyond his artwork. He's also a board member of NAMI and Southern Nevada, which is the National Association for Mental Illness, mm -hmm. which, you know, tell me about your experience being on that board and getting on that um, board, actually. Getting on the board was funny. Um, it was, I was going through my, to change, my life has changed dramatically in the last three and a half years. Um, when I decided that I was no longer going to be the victim of my life and I was going to be the, the, the hero of my life, I wanted to become healthier physically and mentally. I ended up getting gastric sleeve surgery because I was almost 300 pounds. Um, and the moment that I did that, I was like, okay, you're going to reboot your entire life. Part of it was the mental, part of it was the physical, but they all had to be balanced together perfectly. Once I got the physical aspect taken care of and I continued to work on that every day, and I started working on the mental. I wanted to help. With my art, so many people reach out to me and they tell me, you know, I love that you share your feelings, your emotions, and they open up to me. But a lot of people started reaching out with, I'm depressed as well, and I could understand that and I could talk to people, but I didn't have the training to talk to them. I started looking online and realized, because I didn't have money to take classes, NAMI actually teaches people and have classes, and it's, sometimes they're free, or sometimes they're very inexpensive. And I went to the first meeting, which happened to be the same one that they were doing, like their yearly board meeting, where everybody's invited. I was, think I was like the only person that went to the board meeting, looking the way that I look, with PhDs and all these people that I thought for myself at the time, I was like, wow, like these are actual adults. I'm still trying to pretend I'm one, and I don't look like one. Uh, and I'm in the board, and I have a backpack on me full of spray cans. And they kind of just, they didn't pick on me, but it was easy for them to, as to stand out. And they were like, you know, what do you think about NAMI? And I didn't give them a real answer at first, because I was just trying to be polite. And then they, they were like, no, what do you really think? And I told them. The fact that you're the National Alliance for Mental Illness and it took six weeks for anybody to return an email was ridiculous. The fact that it took this long to respond to a message on Instagram is ridiculous. The fact that you're posting, uh, you're posting resources every week on social media, it's ridiculous. And I, I don't mean it in a bad way, because I really don't, but for somebody that's dealing with depression and suicide ideation, every second counts. It shouldn't be that difficult to f try to find help. So I went on. <laughs> and. They said thank you, I left. I thought I would never hear from them again. And I literally get a call about an hour later asking if I wanted to be on the board. I said, are you sure? And Trin, who's actually the one that, that called me, and she's the director, uh, she said, you're exactly what we needed. 
because you have these people that are amazing at what they do. You know, these doctors, these PhDs, these lawyers, they sit on the board. But every single one of them, even though they don't speak about their own mental health because of their professions, I want to be the poster boy if I have to be, to speak up for everybody that feels like they can't. So they saw that in me, they saw what I, that what I was doing, and they were like, we want you on the board. I feel terrible because I'm not on the board as much as I should just because of traveling, and you know, especially the last few years once the world opened up. Um, I travel so much, but I'm focusing a lot more to keep going back to the board. And I actually just took a, a, a course recently of uh, crisis prevention counseling, um, looking to for another one for suicide prevention counseling as well. And just continue, as I like to call it, sharpening my sword, because to me, the art, the poetry, all that stuff, that's just me. That's just my language. And the, uh, the, to let you know, at the, the premiere of his documentary, NAMI actually had a table there. Yeah. I had to make sure, because every time I do an event or a show, I don't, at the end of the day, my whole purpose in life now is to help and to get the word out. So if I could incorporate any sort of educational aspect to an art show, me painting graffiti walls, then I will. You know, it, it, it's interesting. Actually, th th mental illness is such an important problem in this country. As I said, I think it's the number one public health problem. But it's a basically uh, six to 12 week rotation in med school out of four years. Yeah. That, whereas what we are doing differently in our curriculum is every single case that is presented to a student, the student then has to come back with what are, what are the disparities of that disease? How does it affect different communities different? How do the social determinants of health not only affect the disease, but affect your therapeutic intervention? Mm -hmm. And what is the behavioral health or mental health issue associated with this disease? And I can clearly tell you that as a gastroenterologist, because the GI tract, which is the second most highly innervated uh, system after the central nervous system, is very sensitive to changes in your mind, food, and things of that nature, as you well know that I would say roughly 80 to 85% of my patients came to me with GI presentations that were actually manifestations of a mental illness, mm -hmm. stress, anxiety, yeah. depression. And then what ends up happening, and we saw this, when we do our household-centered care where we go into the household and the student is responsible for that household for four years with other interdisciplinary students, one of the things we had done and we plan to do here too is do mental health therapy in the household as long as it's not a domestic issue. Yeah. Now, there's a twofold reason for that. One of them is how you mentioned the taboo nature of this in our communities. Well, if you could treat somebody who has a mental illness in the household, and then that therapist, when they're done, turns around and talks to the rest of the family and explains to them what's going on, that this is an illness like a diabetes or anything else, and that do that, you not only help take care of that patient, but you help build their support services, which is their family. So we consider this one of the major, major issues. As a matter of fact, our senior executive dean for academic and student affairs is a psychiatrist who developed the very first outpatient psychiatry training program in South Florida at FQHC, Karen Esposito. And so I, I, I am lucky to not only know you, but you as the rest of my team are these incredibly talented people. If you could say, how does art fit in to medical education? Now, there's a couple of things that we do. One of them is, first of all, we are not scientists. We are clinicians. 
and as such, that is the art of medicine. Mm -hmm. But art within itself, when you take a student to a gallery and you have them, somebody explain the art to them and how it flows, all of a sudden they learn the art of observation mm -hmm. and description. And one of the exercises that are done in some med schools is you'll have 50 students, 25 you blindfold, 25 or not. You show a picture, the student has to describe to the person next to him that's blindfolded that picture. The blindfolds come up, four pictures come up with similar descriptions. The person that was blindfolded has to pick the right picture. Mm -hmm. Now why is that important? Because the doctor has to learn how to communicate, yeah. how to describe things that we don't do as well as we should. Yeah. What, what do you, how do you see the role of art in medical school? Um, I mean, I could get super philosophical and go in that direction of like everything is art, you know. But speaking just in, in this aspect of it, when I was young and I was living in San Diego and I was in the hood in San Diego, they would take us to field trips, you know. We would leave our neighborhood that was riddled with crime, violence, drugs, sex, death, you know, everything that I saw every day. And they would take us into the nice side of town to go look at a museum. Once we get there, all the kids would run around like crazy. And this is like third, fourth grade. And all the kids were running around like crazy, like they do. I was that one kid that was standing in front of a Cezanne or a Van Gogh and just stare at it. And I'd get lost. I'd read what the, the painting was. But first, I'd, I'd try to figure it out for myself. And then after I couldn't get it, I'd look at the little plaque. But I realized that after I left there, it would, I would probably be there for a few hours. I probably only looked at three paintings. And that became my, my weird obsession with museums to spending 12 hours in museums because I have to, because that's my therapy. Like you were saying, getting lost in almost this realistic fantasy world. You know, for somebody like me who looked at the art books, it's like seeing celebrities or heroes in real life, seeing a painting. Being able to express your feelings through emotions without any like rules or staying within the lines and just creating for the sake of creating is so therapeutic to the soul. And if you're able to just find that inner peace, that there is no beginning or end. Like you don't, you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to show that finished painting. Just let whatever that is inside of you out. That therapy session alone, you know for a fact that will help so much in the physical aspect of it because there's certain things that some medicines can't reach and can't help. So you think that doctors should be taught when to recommend a museum tour? I think doctors should or take them on museum tours. Okay. Just because it's, like you said, you teach them this in school. How many times are they gonna do that again if they don't have to? At our, our last institution, which we're gonna have here, we'll have an annual publication by the students. Back at our prior institution, we called it Eloquor. And there the students present their art. That's beautiful. Which is either prose, poetry, visual art, you know, all of that. And because there's, in medicine, there's a lot of students that are very much, have artistic talents, yeah. whether it's music or writing, writing and things of that nature, expressing things. We see things in medicine that people shouldn't have to see. Yeah. You know, the, uh, and you have to be able to express that. Now, mental illness is a problem in medicine. Students have a much higher rate of depression. Resident doctors almost have twice the rate of suicide as the rest of the country. Nurses too, right? Is it recently with COVID it's gone up as well? It's, 
Not not as bad as doctors. Mm. But, but it's still bad. And doctors aren't as bad as dentists. But at the end of the day, people are still suffering. 100%. 100%. But if we're producing the physician of the future, which, number one, has to be an issue of an individual that is willing to serve others, not just ourselves, but serve others. I think there's a general a good rule for everybody, regardless of what career you have. I agree. The, my, my profession has gotten away from that. <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah, so you guys are meant to help us. <laughs> and so we have to get back to these things, look at things realistically. Mm -hmm. And then we as educators yeah. have to say, boy, we didn't get it right, did we? Mm -hmm. We have all these patents, more patents than any other country in the world. Mm -hmm. We developed the newest and most advanced medications. Yeah. But we have all these disparities. So is the measure of a successful uh, profession the number of patents you have or the health of the nation? Yeah. And so we need to expose our medical students and our physicians to the rest of society yeah. and get out of our silo. Yeah, and, and that's, that's one thing that I, that I started teaching myself, just making myself uncomfortable on purpose, doing things that I've never experienced before. Like this past weekend, like I said, I've never been camping before. I'm, 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 a, I'm a street kid. Like, I went to the woods, and it was just beautiful. And I walked, and I just listened, and it helped me so much that no other medication that I was trying to take here back home would help. Not saying that those aren't good for what they are, but I needed that as myself. And I think it's beautiful that you guys are providing, you know, the opportunity for these students who are stressed out they have to do so much work so much schoolwork and the grades and there's there's already so much pressure because a lot of these students whether they want to be doctors or not there's a lot of students that get pushed by their families to become doctors so the amount of pressure is insane you can't even imagine that you know my parents didn't care what i did so that was the good part but i love that you're saying to take them out of like what they constantly see and have a way to express those feelings of those like the things that you said certain things you should, people just shouldn't see so why keep them very locked in? Mental health is health. It's not separate. A lot of people do that, and they go in that direction, and they ignore it because they don't see it as, as important as physical health. Well, it's sort of interesting. The two professions that have extremely high rates of suicide are the two most macho professions, the military mm -hmm. and medicine. And medicine is you bragged about working for 36 hours. Yeah. You bragged about being able to go do surgery after 40 hours without sleeping. All that takes a terrible burden on somebody, especially when you deal with death and suffering almost yeah. exclusively. Yeah. And we're still teaching doctors how to treat diseases, which they have to. That's mm -hmm. our main purpose as clinicians. Yeah. But we have to teach doctors how to prevent it and have to, we have to be a part of society to be able to do that. Yeah. We as a profession are big, we're powerful, and we're rich. We should be able to move that needle in society. Yeah. And we have to. We have to get to real equity in America. How do you think the medical society or the medical world in general is, do you think they're doing better than what they were? Or? We're doing better. Mm -hmm. uh, there's so many systems in play. One is the uh, reimbursement system, the other one is the health systems with various different health systems and all these different things that play different things with doctors. The problem has been, though, that medical education has not caught up with the industry. Hmm. So we're still training doctors as if we wanted a doctor for 1975. Yeah. And so medicine has changed. Hmm. And uh, we've also used criteria to bring in students that are purely quantitative. 
what's your MCAT scores, what were your grades, yeah. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Where the reality is, it's the qualitative aspects of a person yeah. that gets them to serve and discuss, and we have to get back to that. I think art is integral. Yeah. And I think it has to be part of their education, and it should be lining the walls as, as we have art, including yeah. the poster of your, uh, signed by you. Thank you for framing it very nicely, too. <laughs> it came out great. Well, it was great, too, because when I went to take it to get framed, they go, oh, it's a Juan Muniz poster. Funniest part is that my 14-year-old daughter took that picture, and I played with it with filters, and I sent it to my friend to do the poster, but at the end of the day, she took the picture. Well, we're going to end this up in a good note, because I know you already told me my time, mm. is that your 14-year-old is about to celebrate something very special. Yes, she yeah, in July, she's becoming 15, which means we have a quinceanera coming up, and it's my firstborn, and it's the only child that I, like, when I was growing up, when I was six years old, I'm like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have daughters. So, yeah, this party, I don't know if it's more for her or for me, but we're going to have a party, and of course, you're coming. So. The, the, uh, and you're lucky you have two daughters. I have an older daughter and a younger son, and when that happens, you think you drop your son on his head. So, <laughs> the maturity level and the enjoyment. Juan, thank you so much for sharing yourself. Thank you. Thank you so much for Good. having me. More than that, thank you so much for your art. Well, thank you. And, and from the medical school, happy. to be the first car to come out with the most important message of all. Trust me, that means the world to me. And that is a Juan Muniz piece, which will be traveling throughout this city. I wish I could drive it a couple of times. That'd be nice. <laughs> <laughs> they won't let me drive it. Right, okay? no. <laughs> but then again, you know, I'm from Miami, and like they say in Miami, we take stop signs more as a challenge <laughs> than we do as a directional sign. <laughs> so, awesome. from Studio A in Las Vegas, this is Joe Greer saying thank you for tuning in again. Let's make the world better. When I play the maracas, I go chick, chicky, boom, chick, chicky, boom.